0: Well good morning everyone. Happy New Year. I haven't decided yet if it's a if it's an honor to be able to preach on on New Year's Day or if it's some sort of punishment or what I don't know because I, you know I had to go to bed early and that's not normal on that night and so uh, one time um, you guys all remember uh, John Duncan and, and, uh, and then of course John and Kim uh, their son and daughter-in-law and and uh, he asked me to preach at their church one time, and I thought it was such a great honor. Well, it was Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> and so it was like, you know, you could hear crickets out there. No, no one was there. It was pretty interesting. So. But uh, I remind myself that God is sovereign in this situation, and uh, he has you here, and he has me here. And so I'm looking forward to seeing what he's going to do. But before we get to our um, message today, I, I just wanted to refer again to the Christianity Explored class that's being offered that is, again, for, for all adults and all high school students also. And um, so we're going we're gonna to meet together uh, during that time. I think it, it, it's going to take about eight weeks to get through it, and all the high school students will kind of sit together in one area and uh, kind of sit at my table, and we'll be, we'll be in discussion kind of um, amongst our own age group as far as the high schoolers are concerned. But we're all going to be together, all the adults and high schoolers together. So I'm looking forward to that time. It's going to be a neat Training opportunity and it's also a neat evangelistic opportunity. And so we're going to uh, be equipped uh, In a good way. So i'm looking forward to seeing what's going to happen with that christianity explored class that we're going to be having So It is the new year you're all aware of that And uh, so when I was asked to to preach this morning, I thought wow, it's going to be new years What do I do? and so I started thinking through the bible and trying to think of you know, New Year celebrations that they had or maybe some special New Year comments. And, and, uh, and so I, I went to my, to my uh, computer and I searched for the word new in the, in the New Testament just to see what would come up, the word new. And uh, just as an aside, as a, as a Bible study hint, if you're trying to learn about a particular theme or if you're trying to learn about a particular subject, a very helpful thing to do is use the concordance in the back of your Bible, but of course the, the one back there is you know maybe fifty or eighty pages long, it's tiny, right? Well, you can buy a concordance book that's like this thick and enormous. okay And it has every single word in the Bible listed in order. So if you look up the word new in a concordance, it will give you every single listing in the Bible of the word new. and there will be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. and so some of them will be relevant and helpful. And others, maybe not so much. Uh, but anyway, that's 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 just a helpful hint on how to do Bible study, how to learn about a particular theme in Scripture. And so, uh, but of course, you know it's it's 2012 now, and um, you know books are not all that common anymore, especially big, thick ones that are like that and cost eighty bucks or whatever. So uh, you can do it online. There are different websites and things you can go to. There's, there's inexpensive software that, that you can get to do Bible study where you can do searches like that. Just do a concordance search and you can learn all kinds of things. So I went to my, my computer and I typed in new to see what was there, to see what I could learn. And of course, I don't remember how many hits it were in the New Testament, but there were tons. But um, so I just kind of read through there and it was really interesting what I, what I ran across. What was new? What was new in the New Covenant? What's new in the New Testament? What's new with Christ? And so um, I, I would like us, first of all, kind of as a background for all of this, I would like you to open up to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Now, we're going to be in several different passages this morning. Several different passages. It's it's not normal. Normally I like to dig into one passage and look at other passages to see what kind of information they might, uh, how they might help us understand a a particular passage better, but this morning we're going to be looking at several different instances of this word new and this concept of new, and that's why I've called it a new medley for a new year, and a friend of mine commented that that sounded like a kind of goofy title, but I thought it was rather clever, but uh, it's a new medley. We're looking at what's new in the New Testament. We're going to start in Luke chapter 5, but before we do, I want to pray for us. Father, we uh, submit ourselves to you this morning. We um, are glad that it's a new year. We're glad that it's 2012. We look forward to seeing what you are going to do in this year because you are sovereign over this year. You're sovereign over us, over our lives, over the events of the world. You're sovereign over weather. Um, Lord, we, uh, we submit ourselves to you and we're, we're glad that we get to know you. Lord, I pray as we come to your word that we would seek you in it that we would find you in it. We look forward to hearing what you have to say to us, what you uh, would have us to learn. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would bring change in our lives, even this morning, even as, <clears throat> even as we're um, listening to your word, as we're reading your word, as we're searching out your word together to find out what is new, what is new for our new year. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're looking at Luke chapter 5, and we're going to be reading the last paragraph. Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days He also told him a parable No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment If he does he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old And no one puts new wine into old wine skins If he does the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled And the skins will be destroyed But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins And no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good So the first thing in this parable about new wine That I want to look at is the provocation verses 33 through 35 so Folks come up to him and they ask him this question They're saying jesus when we look at the the disciples of john And we look at the disciples of the pharisees. They have a schedule for when they fast They fast at certain times and they offer certain prayers they kind of have a schedule. They have the way things are done. And, and that's, that's the right way things are done, by the way, Jesus. And so, uh, but when we look at your disciples, we see that your disciples, they eat and they drink, and you guys are kind of always hanging out. There's not, They don't follow the, they don't follow the norm. They're not fasting like they should. They're not doing what they should be doing. So what's going on with this, Jesus? And so uh, uh, that, that's kind of the background. They're kind of testing because Jesus' disciples, Jesus and his disciples, don't seem to fit into the paradigm that they had, right? The understanding that, that they had. And so that's, that's the provocation. And so Jesus, in responding to that, he wants to answer. First of all, he talks about the, uh, the wedding guests. And the wedding guests aren't, you don't go to a wedding to fast and to be mournful. You go to a wedding because that's where the bride and groom are, and you're going to party. You're going to celebrate their being joined, right? It's a happy time, it's a celebration time. You don't go there to fast. You know, we all meet together. There's no food. There's, there's no joy. And, and, and we're just going to fast during this time. That's, that's not the way you do it. And so that's what, that's what Jesus tells there. Uh, he, says, he says, look, I'm here. I'm, I represent the bridegroom. I'm in their midst. And they're not going to fast while I'm here. There was a time for fasting, and there'll be a time for fasting again. <clears throat> but while I'm here... It's not time for them to fast it's not a mournful time Okay, he's he's saying there's something new about his presence that kind of changes the way they do things And then he tells a parable Well, he tells two parables actually First of all, he tells the parable of the garment and the patch He says no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment If he does he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old So I've read that, I don't know how many times, and when I looked at it this week, it suddenly seemed a little bit different. So you have two, two pairs, two garments, let's say, two pairs of jeans, all right, for example. You have an old pair and they have a hole in the knee. And you have a brand new pair that you just bought. He says nobody goes to the brand new pair and cuts out a piece to use as a patch to put on the old jeans. The old jeans may be more comfortable and you may like them better and you've worn them a million times, that's why they have a hole in the knee. They may be, they may be uh, more enjoyable to you or whatever, but you don't take a new pair of jeans and tear them up so that you can patch an old pair of jeans. That doesn't make sense, right? Because, for two reasons, one, you've ruined the new pair of jeans. You've ruined them because you tore a big patch out of them. And second of all, that patch isn't going to match the, new jeans, the old jeans anyway. The old jeans are, are faded. They're worn. They've already stretched and shrunk and done whatever they're going to do. And you put a new patch on it from a from a new pair of jeans and it's not going to work So it doesn't match. He said you've ruined the new and you haven't fixed the old It doesn't work So that's that's his first parable that he gives you The second parable that he gives Is about wine and wine skins He says verse 37 no one puts new wine into old wine skins If he does the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled And the skins will be destroyed but new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. So the the picture here, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't have canteens like probably most kids did. I had wine skins. I don't know why, but it was a, it's a water skin is what I had, and that and I would sling it over my shoulder, and that's what I could carry around. That's that's what I carried uh, water in was this this water skin. Well, it's it's made out of leather and it, and it's kind of malleable and stuff like that. But if if you were making wine and you were putting it into wine skins, it's it's a similar kind of skin. But you take this wine that's fresh, you've just, you've just prepared it, but it hasn't fermented yet. And you put it into these skins, and then you seal it up. And what's going to happen to that wine as it ferments? It expands, right? It starts expanding as the fermentation process happens. And so it's going to stretch that skin out. It's going to stretch it out and get thin and kind of old. And then if, if you were to dump out that wine that now has fermented and put new wine that has yet to ferment again in there and seal it up, it would stretch. And what would happen? It would burst. It would burst. Now, I've never made wine before, but um, I have made something called kvass. K-v-a-s. Kvass. Kvas. It's a it's a Russian drink, and the the single most common element in all Russian meals is bread, and in kvass, uh, kvass is a drink made out of bread. And it's very interesting, and well, not many people like it. Not many Americans like it, but a percentage of our family likes it, and I'm one of those. And so. I decided I would try and make it in Chicago one time when we lived there. And so I followed this recipe that I thought would work and I tried this and that and whatever and I put it in bottles. I had some, <clears throat> I had some uh, glass bottles that I, I put it in and I sealed it up and I put it in the kitchen and left it there. And that's what I was following directions. That's what you're supposed to do. Well, turns out my mom was visiting at that time and when I was away at work, they thought they heard gunshots in the kitchen because these things started exploding and then one would jar the next one and it would explode and they all exploded and there was glass everywhere. Because the fermentation process had started to happen. It wasn't supposed to, but I had done something wrong and they were fermenting and exploding the bottles in my kitchen. And so that's that's the concept here. That's the new wine turning into old wine. It's fermenting and it's expanding. And and so what happens if you were to do that? You lose the wine that you were trying to make because it just spilled out on the ground and you ruin the wineskins. So you ruin both. All right, so those are the two parables that he tells. And again, this is an answer To the question that was posed to him, saying, Jesus, your disciples don't look like disciples are supposed to look. They don't look like the Pharisees' disciples, and they don't look like the disciples of John. So, Jesus, what's going on? So, Jesus tells those two parables. So, what's the point? What's the point? We've looked at the provocation, we looked at the parable. Now, what's the point? What's Jesus trying to say here? Well, first of all, let's look what do the wineskins represent? In the context of our story here, what they represent is the established religious order of the day. The established expectations of the day. Okay, so these were, these were Jews asking him that question. They had grown up in the Jewish system. it's very very spelled out. And not only is the Old Testament pretty detailed about, about what the Jewish religion was supposed to be like, they, they had sort of set some parts of that aside and they'd embellished other parts. And it was mixed in with this tradition and it had a very, a very specific look. The way it was supposed to look. If you were Jewish, this is what you do. And Jesus' disciples didn't fit that. So the old wineskins are that system, that religious system, the expectations that they had of how what, what we had to do, what they had to do in order for God to bless them, the way things were supposed to look, the way religion, the way coming to God was supposed to look. That's, that's the old wineskins. And Jesus is saying, there's something new about me. Something new about me. And if you try and stuff me into your old wineskin, we're going to have a problem. I don't fit there, and it's going to destroy your wineskin. And so that's, that's sort of the idea of what he's talking about. You see, the, the Jewish religious system, even as it was purely given in the Old Testament, was supposed to point towards Jesus. There were symbols, there were sacrifices. If you look even at the way the temple is constructed and the things that are in the temple, uh, or the tabernacle, the way things were given, it was all pointed towards who Jesus was, towards his coming. Even, even who, who was chosen to be king was, was given to point to Christ, to point towards him. And so this system is set up to point towards him, to look forward to him. And now when he shows up, well, who's he going to point to? He is the promised one. He is the deliverer who had been given. And so when he shows up, things change. Things change. And so their expectations that they had set up under the old system didn't work with Christ in a sense because he was the fulfillment of them. He wasn't another piece in the puzzle. He wasn't another sign pointing to something to come. He was that fulfillment. So that's, kinda, that's, that's what Jesus' message is there. He's saying, I am something new. I'm the, the fulfillment and the completion of what has come before. I am new. There's something new about me and I don't fit in To your old system things are going to change Things are going to change And he he even tells that by the The story that he tells or the 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 word picture That he tells that it's like being at a wedding And i'm the groom you're not going to be fasting Things are going to change because the groom is there And the wedding is actually happening This isn't preparation for the wedding anymore This is the real deal So that's that's what the picture means there In in luke chapter 5 And so The question then For us is about application and this is a story about new wine and old wine skins it's about something new it's about jesus doing something new and i thought you know it's a new year it's 2012 it's the first day so what does this mean to us does this apply to us um what what can we what can we take from this what can we glean from this and so i started thinking about what are the wine skins that we have what are the expectations that we have for god What are the patterns that we've established because of our uh, years we've spent with him or maybe years we've spent trying to make him happy with us or, or with our understanding of how to come to God? What are the patterns, the expectations, the limitations that we've put on God? Looking at a new year, what sort of box do we have for God? Because each of us has a box. For some people, it's a really big box. It's a really big limitation and boundary for what we think God can do practically. We wouldn't say that because we know we're not supposed to. But we have that. We have that that delineation. God can do this and that's it. And we, we shouldn't have that. And so I, I want us to examine our hearts on this day, the first day of 2012. I want us to examine our hearts and see what our old wineskin is like or what our wineskins are like. Are they still impressionable like they were when we first trusted him? Are they still malleable and soft? Like, you know, if you went to the, the new wineskin store in Jesus' day, I don't know where you'd get a wineskin. I guess you make it. But if you got a new wineskin, it would be soft and it would be supple and it would be, you know, it, would, it would be tough. It wouldn't break easily. It wouldn't be brittle. It would be, it would be malleable. It would be impressionable. Is our wineskin that way? Is our expectation of what God can and will do malleable like that? Could he do something new in our lives? Or would it just really, really be difficult for us if he were to do something new? And so that's, that's what I want us to think about. What's our wineskin like? Because a new wineskin will be fresh and will be receptive to what God might do now. It will be flexible. If God wants to use us in some new way, maybe he's not used us before. Or if he wants to take some some ministry that we have in some way and make it a big ministry. Or if he wants us to reach out to people that, you know, I just really would actually rather not reach out to those people. Maybe he would have us do that. Maybe, maybe he would have us reach out to them. What What new would he have us do this year? And can our wineskin take it? Can our wineskin take it? So what restrictions have we placed on God? In what ways do we expect him to act? And in what ways do we really expect him not to act? He, he wouldn't use me for that. He wouldn't expect me to do that new thing. He wouldn't call me to that. So I want us to examine our wineskins. Now, there's something very interesting. I want you to look at verse 39. Luke 5, Luke chapter 5, verse 39. So this is his conclusion. He says, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. So if Jesus is the new wine, what does he mean in this verse? No one after drinking the old wine desires the new because he says the old is good. Now that's a pretty enigmatic statement. But what I draw from it is this, that we can get into a pattern in our lives, and often we do, where we have boxed God in, and he's comfortable. He's comfortable to us. Because he won't ask me to do this thing that I'm comfortable with. I'm, I'm comfortable with the way he behaves in my life. And so that's the way we're going to continue, right, God? We're going to continue with these restrictions. Or maybe, maybe you're the kind of person who... Ha, maybe you've spent years trying to earn his favor. Maybe you have built a religious structure... A way that you, you go to church regularly, you do this regularly, you don't do that. You you have you have a structure in mind of the way that you expect that you're going to please God or come to Him. And you're pretty satisfied with that. And the idea of setting that aside and doing the very frightening thing of just trusting in Christ and the work that He's done, maybe that's scary to you. And you just prefer to go back to the old system. So I, I find verse 39 to be very challenging to me, that maybe, maybe I have God wrestled down into a box that i'm happy with that i think i can manipulate that i can control that he's he's not he's not going to do something new and unexpected so that's the that's the first instance that really caught my attention in the new testament of the word new was this whole idea of new wine and old wine skins and and um so i i wanted us to look at that and kind of meditate on that this morning because, well, for, for lots of reasons. But for some of us, we need to re-examine our own expectations that we have on God. And for some of us, we need to re-examine whether we actually know him or if we're just content with our structure that, that we've put up. And Jesus says that he, he's the new thing. He's the bridegroom in our midst. In the illustration, in the, the picture there, he is the new wine going into, going into the wineskin. And in, in John fourteen six, he says that he is the way and he is the truth. And he is the life and no one comes to the father but through jesus And that's a a very new way to come to god. That's point number two is a new way Hebrews 10 gives us a fuller picture. So let's go to hebrews 10 Let's look at what this new way is This is another one that really caught my eye Hebrews chapter 10 And I'm not, I'm not going to read the entire chapter to us. But I kind of want to give you a summary of what, is, of what has come before. The first major paragraph there is verses, verses 1 through 10. And that's, the, that's talking about Jesus as the superior sacrifice. He's the superior sacrifice, verses 1 through 10. And the reason that's superior, I mean, th- think about, think about the, the Jewish system, the Jewish sacrificial system. Day in and day out, year in and year out, there will be new sacrifices offered. And did they ever actually cleanse anyone from sin? Not perfectly. They gave a picture and they gave hope, but they did not ever actually perfectly cleanse someone from sin. And verses 1 through 10 of of Hebrews chapter 10 tell us that Jesus' sacrifice, when he made it, cleansed from sin perfectly. That's the perfect sacrifice. It's the superior sacrifice to the Old Testament sacrifice. So he's he's a new sacrifice. A superior sacrifice. And he did what the old could never do cleansed us from sin. So that's that's the first paragraph there. So Jesus is a superior sacrifice. The next paragraph, verses eleven through eighteen, talks about Jesus as the superior priest. Okay? Thinking back to the, the Jewish religious system, these priests they would go through these purification rituals and they were, you know, they had this job that they would do, they would offer sacrifices again and again and again and again and again and woody pointed out a couple of uh, maybe a month ago he pointed out that if you look all around in in the the temple there or in the the holy of holies um, or even just the holy place what you don't find is a chair they were always working they were always on their feet always working and uh, and so here is their system where they're offering new sacrifice again and again and again and again you could see how that would get old real fast And Jesus comes along, and he offers his own body as a sacrifice. And it's a new thing. It's once and for all, and it's paid, and it's done. And what does he do? When he's done, he sits down at the right hand of the Father. So he sits down because he's done. His work is done. And so Jesus is the superior priest because his sacrifice that he made was once for all, and he sat down. Verses 19 through 22 talk about Jesus. This is what I want us to look at today. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, again, that's mentioning that Jesus is the superior sacrifice and the superior priest, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And the paragraph continues there. But we are to draw near. There is a, there is a new way that's been made. A new way. The new and only way to the father is through the ministry of Jesus, his sacrifice and his priesthood. And in a group this size, there are still some, I'm certain, there are still some who are thinking that coming to God is an issue of doing certain things and staying away from certain things. Doing some, th- some, some things and not doing some things. That's what pleasing God is about. And He says here that the only way, the new way that we can come to him is through the flesh, the sacrifice offered by Jesus. It's through the ministry of Jesus. And this is where it comes right down to to the heart of what the gospel is. The heart of the gospel is that we are sinners and any offering we might bring to God is tainted. No matter how good it is, it's tainted because of our sin. But what happens is that Jesus, who lived the perfect life, was obedient to God through the, through his entire life. He was, he was perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. When he died on the cross, an exchange happened when we trust in him. We get his righteousness. Because we had none of our own. It's always tainted. We get his righteousness, and he takes our sin. That's the exchange that happens. That's the center. That's the core of the gospel. That's the new way... That Jesus is talking about. The new way. It's an exchange where he takes our guilt. He takes our punishment and our sin. And he gives us his righteousness. And that is a huge thing. And that is a new thing. That is difficult for people to understand. Because we want to work. We want to earn it. And we think somehow that we can. The message again and again in the the New Testament. Really in the the whole Bible. Is that you can't. You can't, but Jesus did, and he offers you his righteousness. It's interesting how it talks about here in in Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about entering into his presence boldly and with confidence. And what's interesting to me about that is that if a person who is not prepared to go into God's presence were to try to go into his presence, and particularly with confidence, with boldness, Would that be a good thing? It wouldn't be a good thing. It would actually be another sin. It would be presumption. It would end up in their destruction. Because you have to be prepared. You have to be righteous and holy to be in in his presence. And since I don't have that myself, if I were to try and come into his presence myself, as I am, as I was, I'd be fried. But the fact is that he makes us new. And he then says that when, when we are made new, when we've been forgiven, when we have, we have his righteousness and our guilt has been paid for, we can come into his presence. We should come into his presence with confidence. We're supposed to. And so what is expected of us and what is, what is told to believers to do is actually impossible for someone who's not a believer and would mean their destruction even if they could do it. So it's crucial that we understand that this new and only valid way to be made right with God. No other way to God is actually a way to God. No other way will get you there. But God's not through with us at this point. He's also created for us a new self. Let's flip over to Ephesians chapter 4 and look at the new self. Ephesians Chapter 4, we're going to look at our new self. New man, it says literally. Now, before we move on to this section, it's real easy for us to make the leap and to hear the application part, to hear the part about how we're supposed to change our lives. We leap over the whole gospel stuff and we grab on to the what I'm supposed to do stuff. To the list. It's real easy for us to do that. But Paul starts out each of his books. Usually it's half of the book is theology. Half of the book is an explanation of the truth of the matter. Half of the book is about what the gospel is and how you can be made right with God. And then once that has been settled, then he moves on and he talks in in the latter half of the book about, okay, what does this mean in your life? But you can't start reading halfway through the book. You've got to go through the beginning. And so often We skip over the beginning. We kind of tune it out and all we hear is blah, blah, blah. And then when it gets to the list of stuff I'm supposed to do, well, then I pay attention because that's a list of stuff for me to do. And what we're making of ourselves is a moralist. We're making ourselves into a moralist. We want to try and live out the gospel implications, what it means that these things are true. We're trying to live that stuff out without knowing the truth that's talked about. So even in this passage, we're going to run across where Paul says... He's going to give a caveat. He's going to say, look, I am talking to people who are in Christ, who have already been made new in Christ. I'm talking to those people. I am not talking to people who have not. I'm not talking to people who are trying to skip the first half of the book and jump into the do stuff part of the book. Okay? So that's, that's uh, what I want to point out to us, the caveat there. Let me read for us. Chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. Well, you know, I'm going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to read, not the chapter, 17 through 24 is what I'm going to read, the whole paragraph. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. And here's the caveat. Assuming that you have heard about him, or in the Greek, assuming that you have heard him, it says, and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the first thing he says, first of all, he gives a description of what these Gentiles' lives are like. And it's a pretty dark description, right? And if you'll notice, as you look all the way through that description, it's about their thinking. Look look back through there. Look back at your text. Chapter 4, verse 17 the end of the verse: There, they walk in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from from the life of God because of why? Ignorance. Again, it has to do with the mind. Due to their hardness of heart, they become callous, etc. So he's talking about heart attitudes. It's amazing to me how much he's talking about that. But that's that's what that's what their life stems from: is this confusion. Lack of understanding the futility of their minds and this life that they're leading as a result and and the impurity that they pursue and those sorts of things. And so what he says is, Christians, you are not to live that way. You are to put off that old self that looks like those Gentiles. Put that off from you. And again, I, I want to point out the caveat. Don't skip over the relationship with christ don't skip over the gospel and jump to the list of stuff to do and think you know this is my first time i've ever heard about jesus but i guess i can put off the old self you can't the assumption is that you're in christ and so you need to you need to trust in him for that salvation you need to trust in him for the forgiveness of of the sin that you have in your life you need to receive that righteousness from him and be made new and then you will be able to put off the old self, like he talks about here. And what he says about it is that it belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through sinful desires. So, what in the world is the old self? What is that? Well, it's the type of life that you lived before you trusted in Christ. And if we look back at verses 17 through 19, and we see all that's listed there about the the manner of life that Gentiles lead, That's the old self that he's talking about. It's tied to a corrupt and a defective way of thinking that's enslaved to the sinful passions of the flesh and stems from a heart hardened toward God. He says, put that old self off. Consider it dead and consider yourself dead to it. That's something you cannot do if you're not in Christ. You can't put that old self off because Jesus says, that uh, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. All through 1 John, when we when we went through 1 John, it talked about being a slave to sin. And when you're a slave to sin, you can only do what sin says. You can only do what sin says. And so the assumption here is that you'd be regenerated, that you're actually new in Christ, and then you'll be able to put this old self off. You'll be able to listen to something new. You'll be able to to put off this old confusion, this old greedy lifestyle this old sensual seeking after the passions of the flesh and being a slave to the passions of the flesh to do what they desire remember we had a memory verse a while back in romans 13 but put on the lord jesus christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires to gratify its desires we have to put on the lord jesus first so that's the first thing we're supposed to put off the old self and then we're to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, he says. And so I thought, what does that mean? So I looked up renewed in the New Testament and I looked at all the instances there. And <clears throat> there, it's mentioned several times. It's mentioned in Romans 12. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. It's mentioned in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. It says, excuse me, our inner man is being renewed day by day while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, and the things which are unseen are eternal. So that's, a, that's a, in a sense, renewal. But I think the, the best description of it comes in Colossians chapter 3, which is a, a parallel portion, a parallel passage to what we're reading right now. And he says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, after telling them to put off the old self with its practices, he tells them to put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So it's a problem of understanding. It's a problem of of knowing, of knowing something true, of submitting ourselves to the truth of Scripture, submitting ourselves to God Himself in relationship with Him, in prayer, in communion with Him, in time spent with Him, in Scripture memory, in meditating on Scripture. It says that, uh, Titus 3 says that this work of renewal is a work of the Holy Spirit that He does in your life. We are supposed to be renewed in our minds so we don't have that old, lost, dead way of thinking. Like we had before we were in christ, but a new way of thinking and we learn that from his word And then finally he says to put on the new self Which is created after the likeness of god in true righteousness and holiness put on the new self I want you to flip over again to colossians chapter 3 if you've if you've left there colossians chapter 3 He talks more about putting on the new self and what that means But this is a new self that we get some of the new things we get in the New Testament. And one of them is a new self, a new, a new man, it says in the Greek. A new man. Colossians chapter 3. I just want to read the paragraph there, verses 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the to God the Father through him. So that's when Paul is talking about what it means to put on the new self. That's what he's talking about. It's a new set of, of emotions. It's a new set of desires, of want to. It's a new want to that only comes from God. And it drives what we do. It's part of our new man. It says that it's it's created by God Himself. What does Second Corinthians five seventeen say? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things. Uh, all things are new. There's a new creation. There's there's a newness that God wants to put into our lives. Now, I know we've looked at lots of different passages and we've skipped all over and I've read large chunks and and things like that, but what I take from this is that God is doing a new thing in the New Testament. When he sent Christ, it wasn't just as another step, another piece of the puzzle. He was the point. He's, he's the new thing that God is doing. And so, think about our own lives. Think about our church. Think about your own relationship with Christ and your own family. And think about how you could use some of these new things that God has done. Think about, think about your wineskin. Is it new? Is it supple? Could it take some new wine and, and, and be good to go? Or is it hardened? Is it ossified? Is it set in place? Is it, is it not, not going to be malleable? Is it going to burst if God tries to do something new? Think about that. Think about the new way to God. The new way to God that Jesus established in his own flesh that we're going to celebrate today. That's a new way. That's, in something, that's something entirely different from the expectation that I had before I heard the gospel. I thought it was I thought it was the whole you know making sure I did more good stuff than bad stuff and I'd be good to go. But there's a new way and it's not through sacrifices of bulls and goats anymore. The new way is Christ himself and his ministry and that's the only way. And he offers us when we know him he offers us a new self, new work that he's going to do in our life. It's a special creation, something that something that he does in us. It's a work of the Spirit in our lives, but it brings newness, new creation, new life. These are some of the new things that are offered for this new year. God offers them all in Jesus. And we come to the fourth point. He offers a new covenant. A new covenant between God and man, between God and his people. If you all would flip to 1 Corinthians 11, I'm going to turn to Ezekiel 11. So you guys are turning to 1 Corinthians 11. I just want to read Ezekiel 11, two verses from there, verses 19 and 20. So Ezekiel, this is written, you know, five, six hundred years before the birth of Jesus. He says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh. And give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I shall be their God. That's one of the givings beforehand, one of the offerings beforehand where he mentions this new covenant, this new thing that he's going to do. And in the person of Jesus, you guys are in 1 Corinthians 11. In the person of Jesus, we have that. Remember the Lord's Supper? Remember at the end? The things that he said, the things that he did, what, what Sarah was talking about here, that's the new covenant. It's, it's fulfilled. It's enacted in him. So if, if I could get the men to come forward, please, for, for communion, I, I just want us to uh, read a little bit from Corinthians. And as Sarah mentioned, communion is a very special time. It's a very uh, unique thing. And it does say that there is a way to take communion that is, that is unworthy and, and there are consequences for it.